The following program is a podcast1.com production. Let's play. Driving down the highway in the left lane. It's a 60 mile an hour zone, and I'm doing 80 miles an hour. Yes, I like to speed. Um, I'm blessed. No, I can't say this. I can't say that. But I will say that, you know, as a young man, uh, I was arrested quite a few times uh, for a variety of traffic infractions um speed was definitely one of them certainly lost my license for a while and uh as a mature man i have not really matured much in that department i still like fast cars fast bikes fast and uh i still enjoy feeling that I am winning the race. (laughs) You know what I mean, right? (laughs) When you're on the highway and you somehow feel like it's some kind of race and that you have to get there for, you know, you're getting there first. What's like the worst thing, right? When you're like passing people like a lunatic and then, you know, because of traffic or because of uh, traffic lights or because of a flow, somebody that you pass dramatically winds up pulling up alongside of you, slow and steady, you know, the turtle in the hair, reminding you that your efforts to win are all for naught. <laughs> hate that. I hate that. Because it's pretty much true. that all that, you know... Jack Rabbit, you know, starts off the line and and zigzagging in and traffic, uh, in and out of traffic. It the advantage it gives you is is at best minutes, minutes. So you drive like stressed out because you know you're under you're you're under fire here. You're you're in the race. You know, high alert, not relaxing at all. To get home three minutes early at best. Be that as it may. Oh, I was just saying that as a mature uh, speeder, I don't get arrested or go to jail or get pulled over or whatever. I don't, I don't know. It's uh, I get treated differently. So where was I? Oh yes. So I'm in the left lane, doing eighty and a sixty, and this guy, this asshole, is riding, drafting me on the bumper of my car at eighty. I'm 25% higher than the speed limit. Notice I call him an asshole. You know, uh, what was it? There's a George Cohen thing about the, that the, the roads are filled with assholes and idiots. You know what I mean? The idiots are the ones who are in front of you. 
assholes are the ones who are coming up behind you, trying to pass you. Something like that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So, you know, and my natural instincts are hostility, uh, you know, are, are, are road rage. That's, that's my natural. I think it's most people's natural instinct. If you read my book, Shut Up and Give Me the Mic, which uh, was well-received, if not well-sold, um, and I wrote every word myself, unlike most rock authors or most, you know, entertainment authors. But in fairness, all of them, these are two mutually exclusive talents, writing and whatever else it is you do, whether you're an athlete or a singer or an actor, just because you do one of those other jobs well, it does not mean you should be able to write well. That's just like saying, hey, why can't that writer quarterback for the New York Jets? You know, because they're different talents. I am blessed in that I have developed a number of different talents, and writing is one of them. So I wrote my book myself. But in the book, I talk about a very a life-changing experience, an extreme road range rage experience, which wound up in a life-or-death struggle, and I wound up in jail for assault with a deadly weapon. Maybe a story for a different time. And this really by the way, was around that same time of, of heightened violence and Twisted Sister in the bar days. You know, I was talked about that in a previous podcast. It just sort of all fed into itself. And as I laid in that jail cell contemplating uh, an actual uh, prison sentence uh, for assault, uh, I had definitely, it was, a, it was, I had a, you know, I had an awakening there. But be that as it may, I always check myself when it comes to road rage ever since that time. That happened in the late 70s. So I don't allow my, you know, you, you know the flare up initially, what the, what the hell that asshole doing? And then like, you know what? Let it go. We are driving weapons, tons. These things are, are, are deadly weapons, the cars we're in, the potential. Uh, and you know what? And, and there are people out there who are just to the next level of hostility. As I experienced in my road rage incident where a guy tried to kill me with his pickup truck. Um, you know, I mean, you know, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? So I will always just calm down, pull over, move, get out of the way, let him go. It is not worth it. It's not worth throwing the finger out the window. It's not worth the cursing, the screaming, the yelling. I'm telling you people, these things can escalate. And escalate quickly and, you know, reflecting on my own experience, go from being just, you know, driving stupidity to a life or death struggle. And then you're laying in a cell in New York City waiting to see the judge just to talk about your felony assault charge. And this was not a bravery thing on my part. This was a desperation Thing the again, I'm starting to tell the story. I'll save it for another time. But I, I see this guy on my ass at 80 miles an hour in the left lane, and I go, "What an asshole!" And I look at him through the my rearview mirror, and I see this guy is just hating life through his windshield. I could just see by his body language he is driving on my bumper at 80. Wanted to pass me with only one hand on the steering wheel. He's in a van. And one hand on the side of his head, leaning 
on the sill of his of the door window. You know what I'm saying? So he's got his head in his hand, and I could tell by his face, his life sucks. And as I let him pass, I said to myself, what could be so bad that this guy's life sucks so much? Now, sure, you're all going there. Well, there are a bunch of things. He could have lost a family member. He could be just got news. He got cancer, those kind of things. And yes, those are the type of things that absolutely, I don't want to say vindicates not the word, but absolutely say you have every reason to, in the world to feel life sucks at that moment. No doubt about it. But the reality is, of those people with that face, with that attitude, with that feeling about the world, they don't have any of that stuff going on. They just hate their life. They hate their existence. They hate the choices they made. And I want to grab them and say, do something about it. You know, whenever you speak to old people, I mean, not, I'm old, old people. I'm talking about really old people. I know I'm getting there. But when you talk to old people, they say, they all say the same thing. If you don't have your health, you have nothing. And I, that rang in my ears at a very young age that my grandparents would all say that. If you don't have your health, if you don't have your health. And I thought about it at an early age and I realized the significance of that. Money, success, is secondary because none of that can be enjoyed. Nothing can be enjoyed if you're unhealthy. If you can't walk, if your body aches, if you're in pain, if you're suffering, I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care what you have or have not. That's the great equalizer. If you are unhealthy, You are unhappy, and you cannot enjoy life. If you are healthy, if you can physically get up every day and try again, back to the guy in the car, well, why the hell not? Why the hell not do something about it? Why the hell not go back to school? Guy looked like he was in his 30s. Maybe 40s. Go back to school. Get a different job. Leave that wife. Well, unless you got kids. You know, work out. Whatever it is that is making you feel your life sucks, as long as you can get up in the morning and try again, you're okay, man. You're okay, woman. That's what I held on to when I lost everything in the 90s. Uh, hopefully, or you may or may not know, but it's in my book. It's also, I've spoken about it here on the podcast. But, you know, I had nothing in the 70s. In the 80s, I got everything. Dreams came true. By the early 90s, I had lost it all. Lost everything. Zeroed out. House, cars, money, band. Music genre, hair metal, gone. Metal, dead. And every day, I struggled. 
But every day I thought, as long as I can get up and try again, I'm okay. There's a chance. As long as I can get up the bat and swing again, I might hit the ball. It's when you can't walk to the plate. You can't pick up the bat. You can't swing the bat. Those are true problems. True problems. And people are always going, oh, I never get an opportunity. I never get a chance. I never get the breaks. Bullshit. Opportunities happen every day. Every single day, we are given choices. Make a left at the corner, make a right at the corner. Say yes to that opportunity, say no. You want to try this? You don't want to try this. Small questions, big questions. Most people just aren't like they, they've got their blinders on. They're not hearing or seeing the opportunities when they arise. And we as a culture are so fast to say no and so slow to say yes. We need to say yes, then figure it out. That was a big change for me in the 90s. Tony Robbins, thank you very much. I always was, yeah, I know you say, well, you were a rock star. You always say, no, no, no. I said no to everything except, you know, heavy metal rock and roll in my band. But I needed to start saying yes to new chances, new opportunities, things that led me to someplace different than where I was because where I was was dead as a doornail. So I say to you, I say to you, say yes. And if you're that miserable, if you're one of those people sitting there going, I hate my life, anything you do to change it will, will start you down a path. It may be small. It may be incremental. It may be a true diet. It may be working out. It may be taking a night class. It may be joining a club. It may be picking up a hobby. It may be doing charity work, volunteering, anything. I promise you, step through that door, Alice. It's, you know, Alice in Wonderland. The pot, you, it'll just, it's a wormhole, baby. It'll open up and you'll meet new people, new opportunities, but change it for yourself. Don't be that guy driving on my ass, one hand on his face, the other barely on the wheel, with a look that says, life sucks. Don't be that person. All right, this week, I decided it was time. Every few weeks, I like to answer questions from you guys. So I put it out there on Twitter. Questions poured in. So I'll get to some of those. You know, if you're like me, you pride yourself on doing your homework. I don't mean homework like in school or anything like that. I mean homework when buying a product, buying something new, making a major purchase for your home or for your life. You know, I'm, I'm pro-capitalism. I truly am. But the, but the saying is, buyer beware. It's up to us to arm ourselves. It's up to us to defend ourselves. And doing research is a great thing. All right? Going, I've, I'm a Consumer Reports reader. And this isn't an ad for Consumer Reports. It's for True Car. All right? So I read. I, I want to know information. I don't want to be fooled. Because I feel like it's a game. It's a chess game. They're out there making products, but there are people trying to put one over on us, and it's our job to protect ourselves. I accept that. In a capitalist society, I accept that. 
okay? But finding clarity on car pricing can be very difficult. You've done the homework, you've got done the research, you know the product you want, but you could be paying thousands of dollars more than your neighbor, someone right next door to you. So how do you really know what's fair? It's good to do your research when buying a car, but there's really only one place to get the most comprehensive car pricing information available. And the truth is, car prices can vary even within your area. So you can go from one dealership to the other on the same block and get a different price. How is that even possible? So when you've done the research, you've done your homework, you know the car you want, you're ready to buy, only one place to go, True Car and the True Car app. No headaches, no hassles, just the car you want at a price you can feel good about. Now you can go online to find the fair price on a new car via True Car. With True Car, you can see what others in your area have paid for the same car. I keep reiterating that, but how much does it suck to find out that your own neighbor or a family member paid less for the same car you got? It's ridiculous. So when you go to True Car, you get a guaranteed savings certificate from a True Car certified dealer. Your savings will be honored by a True Car certified dealer without the need to negotiate. So once the price is set online, you go in with the certificate, that's the price you pay. You're not getting worked over. The True Car certified dealer is not going to be saying, oh, well, there's this, there's that, the other thing. No. You're going to pay the price that you negotiate online. True Car users save an average of $3,221 off MSRP. That means some are saving more. Because the average is over $3,000. With True Car, there's no hassles or headaches. It's how car buying was always meant to be. Over 2 million cars have been sold by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. And there are over 10,000 dealers in the True Car Certified Dealer Network. So you're going to find one near you. You will work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer contact. It's that simple. So visit TrueCar.com or download the True Car app and start saving right there on your phone. True Car. Never overpay. Questions from the Twitterverse. Yes. Um, first of all, I want to address, and I don't have the actual names of the people, some responses to my show on uh, my show on relationships. You know, it was my anniversary, my 34th wedding anniversary, and, you know, when you're celebrating that, people just want to know, how the hell do you do it? So I decided that I would... Answer those questions and, you know, just not answer those questions, but discuss the subject a little bit. And the one thing that people reacted to, I don't want to use the word negatively because my peeps, you know, they know it's a conversation. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a hostility situation here. It's not, it's not like, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh or something where, you know, you got you, you to get mad about it. It's, it's a conversation. And a number of people said, questioned the thing about Looking good for your partner, um, and they interpret it as having to look good for your partner, having to dress up, having to impress them, and saying that you know what. Kind, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the gist of it is: is what kind of relationship is that if you're so unsure in your insecure in your relationship that you can't? Oh, they're coming to get me again. If you hear the fire, the, I mean, I'm in Toronto in my apartment. Can't stop the, uh, the, the authorities when they come. 
But what kind of relationship is that if you need to impress your partner forever? Or if that, if you're, is, is, if, is that, if the basis of your relationship is so tenuous that if you don't look good for each other, you might lose them. That, that wasn't what I was saying. And I appreciate what you're saying. And true love it does not require being beautiful or being handsome or smelling good or whatever. That's not the case at all. It's just, a sh- I'm, for, for me and Suzette, it's just a sign of appreciation that we care enough to make that extra effort, that we care enough to look nice for each other, to be presentable for each other. And, and it's not the, it's not the, uh, the, the core of our relationship. And our relationship does not hang, live or die on that. It's just a nicety. It's just, and you know what? I'll tell you what. It makes me feel like less of a slob too. You know, when I was in the habit of like, you know, when I'd be off, and sometimes I'd be off for, for weeks on end, I'm just walking around in sweatpants, unshaven for weeks, you know, and, you know, and just being a bum, hair just getting matted and stuff. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it sort of feeds, that, that sort of feeds on itself. It's nice to do that, you know, once in a while or for a few hours, but it was, you know, it made me feel better about myself to get up each day and start each day, you know, with a shower and a shave and throw on some clean clothes and, and, you know, and, and, and it set me in a, a tone for me that came from me and went to others. It's, it spoke to others as well about how I felt about myself and my state of mind and where I was at. So just to clarify, yeah, it's not, it should not be the basis of your relationship and any really true love should absolutely far exceed your physical uh, looks. I was just saying that's a nice gesture to each other. And I appreciate it when my wife looks good. She appreciates it when I look good. And that it's not just we're going to dinner on Friday night and we get dolled up, you know. So, all right. On to the questions. In no particular order, you know, it's funny. I kind of wish that my show, I'm hoping my show will expand beyond my rock and roll uh, base. I certainly welcome my rock and roll base, but now with all the years I've done so much beyond rock and roll, I really hope that my appeal, I would like to think my appeal is broader than that. And apparently not. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, I mean, maybe 80, 20, but still the majority of it is rock and roll based. And even, even more narrowly, narrowly, Twisted Sister based. And I really don't want to live or die by my Twisted Sister fan base. I love you guys. Love you SMFs. Don't take that the wrong way. It's just, I think I have more to offer than just that. And when I did morning radio for three years, uh, talk radio, it was great because my audience in Hartford and Richmond, Virginia expanded beyond my rock background, which was awesome. And as I've said before, you know, without playing music, I had hip-hop listeners, NPR listeners, pop listeners, 
uh, rosters. I had a, a, a country uh, because people were listening to me for my content, not my music. So I don't play music on this show, and I hope the word gets out about my content, which I'm not even sure what it is. Every week I go, what the hell am I going to talk about this week? And then, you know, something comes to me and I go somewhere. So going to question number one, Ed Marcus asked me about, um, asked for some Motorhead stories. And would I say that Lemmy was integral for breaking the band in the UK? In my book, everybody read my book, please. Shut up and give me the mic, it's called. I have a whole chapter on Lemmy because he was so integral. He was so important. He was so key in Twisted Sister finally breaking through that if not for him, I don't think we ever would have. The most famous story with Lemmy, and there are a number, being our first show in the UK was at the Wrexham Football Stadium, a soccer stadium in England, uh, a metal festival, Motorhead headlining. And Motorhead is his 1982. We're recording Under the Blade. We have not released our first album yet. We have not performed overseas. We're recording an album in England. We're relatively, except for some pictures in Kerrang, unknown commodity. And there's this huge metal festival with Motorhead headlining. And because of, I don't know how, probably because our manager was working with Motorhead's manager, we wound up being like fourth on the bill in like a a third or fourth. And with no album, mind you, no track record, but there was a curiosity because Kerrang! and Sounds were giving us um, a lot of play as this band from the States and we had gotten a deal with Secret Records and we were recording with uh, legendary UFO bass player Pete Way, who was our um, producer. And they got us in a special guest slot, which was insane. To make matters worse, the second on the bill, between Motorhead and ourselves, left. Not left, canceled. And we got moved up to second. So you've got a festival bill of all known metal bands. And for some bizarre reason, these brats from the United States wind up being second on the bill. You can imagine the general hatred from the other bands. Who the fuck was Twisted Sister to be given this slot? Unknown, unheard of, nobody nobody even knew what we sounded like. And now we are second in in a football stadium show. Massive show. Well, it gets worse than that. We go, we're going on for the first time in our career in the daylight. Now, Twisted Sisters' opening song for, for years was a song called What You Don't Know, parentheses, Sure Can Hurt You. I had written, The only song I ever wrote, and I wrote all of the Twisted Sisters songs, more about that in a little bit, I wrote it myself. The only song that I wrote to a lighting design Twisted Sister in the bars was having a problem because, you understand, there was no hair metal. This is the 70s. The the glitter rock era of the early 70s is long gone, and Twisted Sister is still wearing platform shoes, makeup, and costumes. 
makeup and women's clothing. We would walk out on stage and people would judge us before they even heard us. So I created this song that was performed for the first third of the song in silhouette. So we'd come out on stage, we'd start playing this song, and people would be only, it was kind of like the voice, right? You know, they would only be able to, and what we're we're performing in silhouettes, so we're moving around, so they're seeing this body language, they're seeing this rock attitude, they're hearing what I believe to be a great rock band. Uh, Look up the song, What You Don't Know Sure Can Hurt You. It's the first song on the Under the Blade record, side one, if you go back to vinyl, but the first song on the record. And um, they would watch, and a third of the way, a third through the song, there would be this, and we would have full front lights hit us. So you made your judgment, hopefully based on our sound and attitude, and then you saw the makeup and the costumes. And that was our opening song for years and years and years. And it worked really well because it really threw people off. If you didn't know what we looked like, you couldn't judge us by our uh, the way we decided to present ourselves. Even though I was totally into the makeup and costumes, I still wanted people to give us a chance. Well, now, for the first time, our first show in the UK, our first show, though we've got in daylight. We're going out in daylight And let me tell you something, in 1980, this is 81 or 82, makeup on bands could not have been less popular. We had heard about Phil Collin from Def Leppard and um, Phil Lewis from L.A. Guns had a band called Girl who wore makeup. They were bottled off the stage at the Reading Festival. We heard about Anvil. You know the band Anvil? Well, Lips used to wear fishnet, stocking, um, gauntlets, I guess they were like sort of glovelets, you know, no fingers, but they went over his forearm, but they were fishnets. They were women's bottled off the stage. The, the nickname for Anvil was Canville because people thought that was gay and Anvil was anything but gay. So so Twisted Sister is coming to England, a place that has an open hatred for makeup bands, left over from the from the glitter era. And we're wearing full, as you well know, full faces of makeup and spandex and, you know, whatever we're wearing, platform shoes. And now we're going out in front of Motorhead's crowd. Let me tell you something about Motorhead's crowd. Ladies, I'm sorry to say this. I'd rather do it with the dudes in the audience. Okay, this is one, back in the 80s, one ugly crowd. And this is from an ugly dude. Okay, so, I mean, this is, these are like, this biker, that kind of, I mean, you know, that kind of look, attitude, down and dirty, serious metalheads. Nothing friendly, poppy, kind, loving about this group of people. Hostility is the word of the day. Motorhead, man. And I get that. I'm one of them. I'm one of those people. I'm a Motorhead fan. I fit in perfectly in that crowd. Not with my makeup and costumes on. No shame in my game on that, though. So we are going to have to go out in broad daylight, now moved up to second on the bill in a football stadium show in a country we've never performed in, where we've never had a song released, where nobody knows thing one about us except a couple of articles in Kerrang! magazine. 
and we are shitting in our pants. Literally. I mean, terrified. I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend. How terrified? There's a discussion in the back room about not wearing our costumes on stage. We've been wearing our costumes since 1976. It's 1981 or 82, I get the years confused. And we are actually talking about taking them off for fear of reprisal from the audience. Now, actually, I'm not talking about it. My bandmates are talking about it. I am refusing. Remember, I'm the asshole. I'm like, fuck that. I am as scared as the rest of you guys about going out there on this stage, but I have worn it this long. I am not taking this stuff off now. And But still, it's, it's a discussion. And if you see pictures of my band, you will see members of my band at that show, and if you can ever see them like listed, wearing their denim jackets over their costume and a pair of sunglasses over their uh, made-up eyes to try to play down that look in front of the crowd. So Lemmy Kilmeister, God bless this guy's rock and roll heart. I always joke that uh, he uh, recognized the smell of human excrement. He, passing our dressing room, I don't know if he picked up on our conversation, if he knew what we were, the, the lion's den we were walking into. Uh, I don't know what the deal was, but he walks in. I've never met him before. This is Lemmy. This is Motorhead circa 19. This is Motorhead circa Ace of Spades, Iron Fist. They're massive in the UK. The biggest metal band over there. He comes in and says, I'll introduce you guys. Who does that? Who supersedes their own appearance, you know, because you make your big entrance, you're the star. People, people don't see, when, when did Led Zeppelin introduce the opening band? Name another time you've ever seen the headliner go out and introduce the band before. If it happens, it's rare. It goes against type. But Lemmy offers to do that for us. Now, as a little... Aside, it should be mentioned that Pete Way from Motorhead, from UFO, was very good friends with Lemmy and had called Lemmy and said, listen, my band's coming. He was producing us. We're taking a day off from rehearsing, actually. Not rehearsing, from recording. And he goes, take care of my boys. So there was that thing. But, you know, take care of my boys and go out and bring them on for their set. Two different things. When Twisted Sister walks out on stage outdoors in full makeup, at the Wrexham Festival in 1981, before hair metal, before glam metal, glitter metal, rock, whatever you want to call it, it didn't exist. We walk out on stage and you could see people with their bottles and cans bringing their arms back. They were ready before we did note one. And then Lemmy Kilmeister steps out on stage and everybody freezes. I mean... Metal God walked out on stage. And he said something in fact of, Now at that time, I did not speak fluent Lemmy. It seemed, I didn't understand what the hell he just said. Now I speak Lemmy. And the audience fortunately spoke Lemmy. He said, Here are some of my, here are some of my friends from the States, from America. Give them a listen. That little statement 
froze everybody in the audience for maybe 60 seconds because God just told them, metal God just told them, listen, we play and that's all we needed. The arms came down, the bottles were dropped, the fists and metal horns were raised in the air, and that football stadium started rocking to a band they had never seen or heard before. Because you know what? We are a damn powerful live band. I know I keep saying that. Maybe if I say it enough times, people will believe us. Uh, and we, the place went nuts. When we left the stage, because you have, you know, we, we were 10 minutes later, we were in the locker room because it's a football stadium. And somebody says, wait, listen, 10 minutes after we'd gone off stage, the crowd was still chanting, Twisted, sister, Twisted. 10 minutes later, game changer for my band. Lemmy coming out there, that's, we went, just shot us out of a cannon, gave us the chance. You know, it was on us. But it gave us a chance to win the crowd, and we did. How much did we win the crowd? Well, there's two statements. One, Lemmy might deny, and I don't say this to embarrass him. Uh, I told you that our management was working with their management, an affiliate who was in the room with Motorhead after our set overheard Lemmy say, this is the first time I've ever been afraid to go on after a band. I didn't hear him say it. Let me might deny it. But the person who relayed it was from the Motorhead camp. And they had no reason to share that or lie about that. It was, we tore that place up. Tore that, I, I, to me, that reaction was one of the greatest reactions of my career. And I think it was due to the fact that people were so not ready. So, you know what I mean? That one of those things where you expected absolute crap and you get the other extreme. So it gives you that sense of elation as an audience. So, but Lemmy comes in to my dressing room, our dressing room, and says, I, I don't want to bother doing Lemmy, Lemmy voice. He says, I brought you your band on. You bring my band on. To me, a Motorhead fan. A headbanger, a young headbanger. I got to introduce Motorhead. And I walked out on stage at that football stadium. The place went nuts. We didn't do an encore, you know, and they went nuts. I brought on Motorhead, went to the side of the stage, and stood there like every other person in the crowd, headbanging like a freaking lunatic, and even had the honor of Lemmy turning to me at one point saying, this song is for him and dedicating the Motorhead song America to me. I mean, I'm getting chills right now. One of the great days of my life. So Lemmy, uh, and, and it went more from there. From that point, Lemmy became our friend. Lemmy showed up at all of our shows at the Marquee Club on the tube, which wound up, him and Rabo, which wound up leading to our Atlantic Records deal. At the Reading Festival, Lemmy would at any chance he could, would talk about us, perform with us, promote us. He fell in love with Twisted Sister and championed our band. And to have the king of metal in the UK and in Europe at that time championing us, I can never repay that man. I can never 
we pay Lemmy Kilmeister for his generosity to Twisted Sister. I love Lemmy. Long answer to a short question. All right, next one. So we got um, Brian Wilhoit. I'm sure you may know this, but I've wondered why there was a cut version of We're Not Going to Take It music video on DVD. Actually, the, the, the version, the video that on MTV that was shown was an edited version from what we did, the full length. The full length started with a family, and some people may hear, hear this and go, it did? Because it's not as well known as the one that has the father just bursting into the room with the kid playing guitar and the father say, all right, mister, just what do you think you're doing? Okay, they started at the dining room table with a family, a large family modeled after my own, having dinner, uh, the kid being asked if he could be excused, and everybody's sitting around very, very angry at the world. The kids are being, you know, afraid of mom, afraid of dad. Mom's afraid of dad. Dad's pissed at the world. I think he may have been driving that van I was talking about. And um, then dad hears music from upstairs. I know what that is. That's music, you know. And he storms upstairs and tears his kid a new one. That was the full-length version. It was cut immediately by MTV because Les Garland hated the Twisted Sister video. It, the Twisted Sister video for, for When I Can Take It was unprecedented back when it came out, when it arrived in 84. And Les Garland, who was the head of MTV, is quoted as saying, that's not a rock video. That's, what do you say? That's not a rock video. That's method acting. That was his quote. They cut the video and they would not let the video out of medium rotation. As popular as that video was, just know that it never left medium, medium rotation. Crazy, right? So that is why there is an edited version. And as a matter of fact, when we wanted to put out the DVD, and I think this is what Brian may be referring to, uh, with all of our, we have a Twisted Sister has all of its video clips on DVD. We couldn't track, we couldn't find the original. Marty Callner no longer had a copy and I don't know if we, I, I don't think we ever found one to put on that DVD, which sucks. But the original long version is lost. But that's the reason why there was an edited version in the first place. Oh, a little follow up. So I want to rock. We're doing the sequel to We're Not Going to Take It. Literally, it was like, well, what does the father do for a living? He's a teacher. What's he like in school? What happens when he goes to school? When we delivered that one, Les Garland's words were. Oh, yes, this is a rock video. Please. And that went into like, you know, a hip clip of the week, power rotation, blah, blah, blah. It was a sequel. But he was wrong about the video. And so, you know, with the, fo- the follow up, he allowed to say, oh, well, now, now they did the, did a video. So that's the answer to that question. Um, all right. Here's the next question. Comes in from Sky Row. So many people's Twitter handles have their actual name. Uh, Skyro has a zero and no picture. Says, could you talk about the first Twisted Sisters show I ever saw at the 2002 skating rink off Sunrise Highway, circa 1981? You remember. You see, this is a little too specific. 
I don't. It doesn't have a broad appeal, question wise. It's really uh, when I do these questions, I want to answer questions that people will be interested in that have a broader appeal. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about a specific show other than this one thing, two things. One, it was the first time my then one-year-old, she says 1981. It was not 1981. Uh, it was 1983 or 82. It was the first time my son Jesse ever saw me perform live. And he was standing on the side of the stage. He was born in 82, so he had to be 83, so he's very young. And he is standing there, and he is rocking in place. And Twisted Sister was a very active band on stage, a lot of running around, a lot of movement, a lot of unpredictability, because it was that kind of almost punk punk energy to our band. And I'm looking at him on the side of the stage, and suddenly he can't control himself anymore. And some of you may know Jesse from Rock the Cradle. Jesse rocks. But uh, and he suddenly makes a run for me. Mid-show, full makeup, full costume, mid-insanity, bands all over the stage. And he this little, I don't think he's two years old yet. He's probably 83. So he's, not, he's one and a half maybe. He makes a break for it and starts to run out on stage to dad. And I remember seeing him coming at me going, no, my brain's going, no, because he's going to get killed. He's going to get crushed. We're all like, with our platforms on, we're like 6'5". But my wife reaches out as a mother's arm has the ability to grow, like, you know, like uh, like uh, Mr. Incredible from the Fantastic Four. She, it stretches to ungodly lengths, and she just catches his shoulder and yanks him back before he gets trampled by Mark the Animal Mendoza. So I remember that. I also remember that my someone kicked in the door of my dressing room, the band dressing room, stole, the only thing they stole were my Twisted Sister colors. And the idiot, two years later, wore them to a concert in New York City, down in front, wearing my jacket. And there were only eight Twisted Sister colors. The five band members and three crew members. There were only eight jackets. And needless to say, uh, my colors were retrieved, and uh, that person had to be carried out. Uh, So uh, don't steal my shit. All right, over. Let me see. Next question. All right, next question. Here we go. Ready? Says, how many band members contribute to writing a song? All right. This is, and this came from David Johnson. This is a, a, a question that depends on the band. Every situation is different. There are bands where individuals write all the songs, as is the case with me. Into a sister, I wrote every song. That's right, music, lyrics, melody, everything. Um, Janie Lane, Warrant, same thing. Donnie Purnell, I think his name, bass player for Kicks, same thing. There are a number of bands out there like that. Other bands have songwriting teams, like uh, Tyler and Perry, or Jagger Richards, uh, uh, Lennon McCartney. Famous songwriting teams, which doesn't preclude other people writing songs. You know, George Harrison contributed a song pretty much every album to the Beatles. 
uh, let's see uh, who else. Um, well, I mean, you know, occasionally you'll see um, you'll see uh, Steven Tyler write with other members of the band, or someone will contribute. Plant Page. But then there were some songs where you go in through the outdoor. You got most of the songs being written by John Paul Jones on that record, and then other songs like the Immigrant Song, or certain songs where John Bonham. Uh, was considered was gotten writing credit as well. So it is it varies from band to band. Some bands actually do it where no matter who writes the songs, they all share the royalties. I think Van Halen was like that. I think I'm not sure. Um, what band? Uh, the Bl- Black Sabbath was like that. I always wondered what exactly Ozzy wrote, uh, being you know the party animal that he was. Um, I know that Ozzy's always had bass players write his stuff. Geezer Butler wrote all the lyrics. And Iomi uh, wrote all the riffs. Um, theoretically, Ozzy wrote the melodies, but I, something tells me he didn't. Uh, I don't know that for a fact. That's just speculation. But anyway, but, but there are a lot of bands, and it's funny because those bands, it starts out one for all, all for one. And then somewhere down the road, people start getting disgruntled with that. I think maybe Guns N' Roses started out that way, actually. I'm not sure. Um, Because writing takes work. And if you're a songwriter, you start to realize, wait a minute, I'm I'm sitting here in my room, busting my ass, writing songs. These guys are out partying, and I'm sharing the, the royalties? So, you know, dissension sets in. Me writing by myself, that came from... The fact that my band, I was younger than the guys in my band, and I was a rube from the suburbs. They were all city guys. And when I first joined the band, I felt a sense of alienation. You know, because, you know, when you're 20 and they're 23, when you're from Long Island and they're from Manhattan, you know, I was a rube. And they were kind of like the cool guys, and I was kind of the dorky young guy from Long Island. And so I wound up working on my songs by myself, and then when my songs started to dominate our set list, and pretty soon my songs were the only songs that were being recorded, it was already set in motion. And I also felt very alienated, so I didn't feel any compunction to share my writing since I was sort of forced. I wanted to write with the other guys, but they kind of blew me off. So I was sort of forced to go do it myself, and it, it, it created a resentment. All right, Snyder Comments listeners, just want to take a minute to thank all my great sponsors and all of you great listeners for supporting my sponsors and this podcast. Listen to me, people. I've been doing this for six months now, and the show is building thanks to your support of my sponsors. It goes hand in hand, so I appreciate that. And all of your contributions help make this show possible. I wanted to remind you that you can support my sponsors by going to my show page at podcastone.com, clicking on the Support This Podcast banner, and there there you will see all my wonderful sponsors that help keep the lights on. As long as I keep getting the show sponsored, I'll keep doing it. I want to keep doing these shows. In addition to my sponsors, you can also support the podcast by using my Amazon banner. Pay attention to this. Amazon offers the show a small commission on any product you purchase. You can even use my Amazon banner if you're located in Canada or the UK. Also, to make it easier for all future purchases, feel free to bookmark my Amazon URL. It's the holiday season. I know you're going to be ordering through Amazon. It costs you nothing to do it through my URL. So please do. It will help keep this show growing, help keep this show going. Thank you again for all your support. And now back to my show. 
Next question. This one comes in from Simon. It says, who, who are the best, worst bands you've toured with? Who are the best wor- in respect of their or lack of personality, etc.? Really hard for me to say. Um, I was a person who did not socialize at all. I didn't drink. I didn't party. Uh, I had a lot of problems with my voice. I beat myself up so severely on stage every night I could barely walk the next morning. So um, I never hung out. So I, and I was in my own head in a big, big way. So I'm sure that a lot of them thought I like. I hope they don't. Other bands don't think I was an asshole. But the fact that I wasn't socializing the way everybody else did may have made me seem like one. But I hope they read between the lines here and saw that this guy is just committed, so committed. So we toured with Metallica, we toured with Anvil, we toured with Maiden, we toured with um, Y&T and Rad and Dio and so many bands. And nobody really, like I said, my, my interaction with all the bands was always very cool. Maybe because I'm big and scary and I don't look like I put up with any shit. Maybe because I treat people, you know, I, I respectfully, but I've got no no complaints about anybody. Not Rat, not honestly, not Dio. I'll give you one complaint about Dio. May rest in peace, and I love you, Ronnie. But I will give you a complaint about Dio. But uh, but not uh, not Maiden or any of these guys. I mean, they were all great. So I got nothing reported there. My Dio story is this. We're opening for Dio. It's 1984. It's uh, Stay Hungry, early day, stage of the Stay Hungry tour. And Dio's got this huge stage production with Sphinxes on stage. Massive, massive, massive. As a result, they won't move anything equipment-wise, staging-wise. As a result, Twisted Sister is forced to the very lip of the stage in every venue. And we're in front of the lights. So we're practically performing in silhouette every show. And nobody... And we and they won't make any accommodations for us. And Ronnie is a super sweet guy, super friendly guy. Again, God rest his soul. And and everybody says that. Well, Ronnie comes, you know, and we see Ronnie. He goes, "Hey, man, how's it going?" He goes, "Oh, it's going good, Ronnie. Yeah, oh, man. but oh, it sucks. We got no stage space. You know, we can barely move up there, and people can't see us when the dark." He goes, "Oh, man, that's terrible. Oh, that that sucks. That's horrible, man. Shouldn't be like that." Like, wow, that's great. Thanks for commiserating with us, Ronnie. You know, I mean, he's the headliner. And so we start to try to get things changed. And when you're trying to get things changed, everybody's pointing to the next guy down the line. It's not me. It's him. It's not me. It's him. Well, following the trail back, we found out it was Ronnie. Ronnie had given the edict. Do not move anything on my stage. I don't think it was at Twisted Sister. I think that was his general rule. I don't care. I'm not moving my set. I'm, a, you know, they had a big stage set. I'm not adjusting anything. I saw a similar thing with Sammy Hagar opening for Kiss many years ago. And, you know, Hagar's just forced out on the lip in front of the Kiss set. You know, so, I mean, but here's Ronnie going, oh, man, that sucks. When the fact is that Ronnie had, had he's, he's the boss. He said, do not move a thing. So, but I, I, I wouldn't call Ronnie a dick. He was, he was a great, cool guy and, and a hero. So, uh, Mama Wolf. Mama Wolf, Mama Wolf, by the way, I want to acknowledge, she, she heard my thing on relationships and she said, I got to get out of my sweatpants. I got to, yeah, I want, I want my relationship to last. Yeah, it, it doesn't hurt. 
I'm telling you, it doesn't hurt. But in a question that I think connects to Mama Wolf's statement about I got to get my, you know, polish myself up a little bit, Mama Wolf wrote to me, um, oh, thank you for telling me. How did your beautiful wife handle the groupies while she was home bearing your children? Suzette is my hero. All right. How did Suzette handle the groupies? It wasn't a matter of handling the groupies. It was a matter of there not being a choice. By that I mean, you know, as Suzette said recently, I love groupies. Groupies, you know, without groupies, the groupies are fans. And groupies, you know, it depends on your definition of groupies. Groupies in the most general term, groupies in the most general term is our fans. And it's used to apply to men and women who are devoutly devoted to a band and follow a band and love everything a band does and support them in every way possible. In the most specific term, it can be used to describe women or men, I guess, who pleasure band members or crew members or use sex to get something they desire from a band or artist or entertainer or athlete or politician, I guess, huh, Monica Lewinsky? Hey, uh, to get something they want sexually. In answer to your question, Suzette doesn't trust me as far as she can throw me. Not that I've given her reason not to trust me. If anything, I've given her reason to trust me. But in Suzette's own words, why should I have the only non-cheating rock star? For a husband. My peers set such a wonderful example, and, uh, and I can't argue the point. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's available, it's out there, it's offered, uh, it's readily available. I made a choice to, you know, again, in my effort to uh, run a marathon, I made a choice to not give my wife a reason to leave me, uh, at least for those reasons, <laughs> uh, for those reasons. Did I miss out on something? I guess certainly immediate pleasure, immediate gratification. But in the mortal words of Rodney Dangerfield, uh, the three minutes of pleasure, the three minutes of pleasure ain't worth the three hours of bullshit. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I gave up something for a greater good and it's a glad, I'm glad it's a sacrifice if it, again, it's a sacrifice. I don't want to use the word sacrifice, uh, uh, you know. It, but I'm glad. I'm glad to give that up for what I got with longevity. And people said, "Well, you know, D, come on, seriously." I say, in this day and age, with everything showing up on YouTube, with everything being filmed and captured, if I had. I'd already be dead in the water. I know people, and they, I shall, they shall remain nameless friends, who once YouTube hit, once social media hit, their past was revealed. Nothing was secret. So I say to Suzette, you know, I say, you know, one day I want to be on my deathbed, or you'll be on your deathbed, and you will say to me, you know what? You were true to me. You were loyal. You didn't cheat on me. And Suzette responded, no, I'll say, I just didn't catch you. <laughs> so, 
So um, she just, you know, she she just deals with it, the reality of it, and uh, and uh, and you know, and hopes for the best. And I plan on not screwing things up. Um, all right, from Brian Payne. Designer, any chance you and the band coming back to Australia or you're coming down under for a tour of some kind? I get asked this all the time about touring in general, about Twisted Sisters, Farewell, about, you know, what we're, you know, uh, about where we're going to play, where we're not going to play. And this is a very harsh statement I'm going to make. But I have not wanted to perform actively in a very long time. I never planned on being a performer at this point in my life. I'm not saying I want to, I want to do things. I want to be creative. But to tour or to play live shows, they're very strenuous and they take a lot out of me. I'm very tortured on that. Um, even my own band knows that I have this hate love relationship with performing because I always perform at a level of discomfort. So it makes me unhappy. The happiness I get is post performance, but the effort going into it that I put into it, the preparation is killer. And I don't, it's killer. I don't want to keep doing it. The most honest tour I ever saw reunion tour was the sex pistols. It was called We're Only In It For The Money. And it was straightforward. We're touring for money. Twisted Sister plays for money. We get great offers. We play the shows. If we don't get great offers, as much as I love you people, and I wish everybody who wants to see the band and could see me perform could see it, we're not just playing for the sake of playing. I never wanted to be still on the stage in this capacity. And by this capacity, I mean running, headbanging, thrashing. I mean, I just had a physical therapy session because I'm trying to nurse limbs and muscles and have them do things that 60-year-olds aren't supposed to do. But I don't want to disappoint people, so I keep pushing myself and I keep working. So... We are only performing in places that are giving us the financial reward and the status that we want to go with it. So it's not, you know, it's not just, it's, it's a matter of being paid, but if somebody pays, you know, X thousands of dollars to play in their backyard, that's not giving us the farewell show we want. Bloodstock is, Hellfest is. Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think where the other show that we've got on the uh, on there. I think it may be. Uh, I know we've got a few shows lined up. They're big festivals, big audience, big payday. I'm being I'm being painfully honest here. You, you know, you could point fingers at me and say, "Oh, you know, yeah, that, that's bullshit." Blah blah blah. It's for the love. It's for the love. There was a time when it was about the love. Now at this point in my life. At this point, with what I have to sacrifice to keep doing it and the fact that we're not going to keep doing it, in all honesty, it's about putting some money away and making some money before we say clear the stage. 
So in answer, are we going to Australia? We have yet to get a significant offer from Australia. Are we going to Japan? We've yet to get a significant offer from Japan. United States, New York. New York, our home, where we did so much work, we're yet to get a significant offer to set for a farewell show, show in New York. So where people, and, and you know what? That reflects the quantity of people who are interested in paying money to see the band. So it's, it's no reflection on the promoter. It's what they think is dollars and cents. They have to pay the band, and they have to make the money to pay the band. So if the interest is there, the offer is made, Twisted Sister will play. But quite honestly, these last few shows, our demand is high as far as what we're looking for to for farewell shows. So we'll probably wind up doing four to six, and that'll be it. Not the last time you see Dee Snyder, but the last time you see Twisted Sister and Dee Snyder throwing his body on the ground, headbanging so hard his ne- that, his, that his neck hurts, and uh, abusing himself physically. Uh, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to uh, have that part of my life come to an end, quite honestly. You know, as you get older, there are times when you find the phrase, I'm too old for this shit, popping into your head. And the line that follows that is, and I'm glad I am. It means I've done it. I don't have to do it anymore. I have nothing to prove. I don't have to prove I can thrash. I don't have to prove I can rock. I don't have to prove I kick ass. I've done it. And ultimately, gravity wins. Gravity beats everybody. Gravity sucks every single human being into the dirt. And I don't want to be on stage when that happens. All right, that's all the time. Questions-wise, I have to answer. There was a ton more, but, you know, I tend to ramble uh, with information, hopefully. And uh, I'll see you next time on Snyder Comics. Stay tuned for the latest AP News headlines from Podcast One right after this. AP Update, I'm Rita Foley. In the presidential sweepstakes, New Hampshire has the first in the nation primary. Candidates who plan to run have to sign up, and the window has just opened. Democrat Martin O'Malley was first in line this morning. Donald Trump is expected to add his name to the list today, too. Yesterday in New York, a reporter asked Trump if some of the many Republicans running for president should end their campaigns. Do I think it's time to have some of the other Republican candidates drop out? Yes. There are too many people. Former Florida Governor Jeb Bush campaigning in South Carolina yesterday didn't sound ready to quit. He's talking about uniting Americans. The next president needs to stop the divisiveness, needs to campaign as he would govern in an inclusive way, campaigning in every nook and cranny of this country. For the 2012 election, 44 presidential candidates from 26 states were on the New Hampshire ballot. I'm Rita Foley.